0: Bring it back. Welcome to the Endurance Town USA podcast, a state of mind destination where endurance athletes of all levels escape their daily grind and connect with our community. This episode of Faces Behind the Races is brought to you by Race Roster, North America's premier behind-the-scenes event management tool. I'm Travis Ford, executive producer of the Endurance Town USA podcast. Today, our host and Race Slow founder, Samantha Pruitt, and I traveled up the beautiful California coastline from San Luis Obispo to Carmel, California, where we met up with Doug Thurston, executive director of the Big Sur Marathon Foundation. Many of you know the Big Sur Marathon as a bucket list event for runners around the world. Doug became the director back in 2013, where he also helped develop Just Run, their award-winning youth fitness program. Doug's history as a race director and running journalist spanned back 34 years with involvement in races across the United States, including several right here in California. He was also the race director for the 1992 U.S. Men's Olympic Marathon Trials. Doug is also a competitor himself with more than 600 road races, including 25 marathons. Sam and I sat down with Doug and his famous cat, Bentley, in the Big Sur Foundation offices in Carmel, California. And I'll let Sam take it from here.
1: So here I am, Doug. Good morning.
0: Good morning, Samantha. How are you? Good.
1: Hanging out in the Big Sur Marathon offices up in Carmel, California, where it's a little bit foggy.
2: Well, it's, that's the summer okay, uh, summertime on the central Carmel. California coast. Mm-hmm. June gloom, we call it.
1: Excellent. Thanks for having me up here. It's great to see you again.
2: Well, I'm happy to, to chat with you. I look forward to your questions and sharing anything you want to know.
1: Okay, well, you better watch yourself. I, uh... <laughs> we'll see how candid we're going to be today. So um, let's have some fun. I'd like to get started and just learn a little bit about you um, on a deeper level than I know. So I know you professionally and we worked together on some projects Mm -hmm. and we are friends of the sport. And so I'm kind of curious about some things I don't know about you and I'm sure I'm not the only one. So let's see if we can um, dig into that a little bit. I would like to hear where you were born and where you were raised.
2: I was born in Norman, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents met in high school in Norman. Uh, and uh, sh- shortly after my dad got his degree in teaching, we relocated when I was still very young. I'm the youngest of four children mm. to Amarillo, where he had a teaching job, and then to Southern California. And Amarillo,
1: so, Texas. Amarillo,
2: Texas. Okay. And then to Pomona in Southern California. And I spent most of my youth in Pomona up until high school age. Okay. Uh, then I've lived in Illinois. Ohio, Texas, but most of my years have been in California.
1: You moved around quite a bit when you were young.
2: Did move around a little bit, yeah, okay. and then a little bit in college, uh, and then a little bit professionally as well.
1: Where did you go to
2: college? I finished at the University of Oklahoma. Okay. I went one year at community college in California, one year to a small liberal arts school in Illinois called mm-hmm. Monmouth College, mm-hmm. Go Fighting Scots, although <laughs> I think they changed their name. I think
1: they Did you have to wear a kilt?
2: I did not have a wear of kilt, but I think think they determined that that uh, was not a politically correct name anymore to be a fighting Scot, so they might have changed their name. Uh, And then I finished at the University of Oklahoma. Go Sooners.
1: And what were you studying?
2: Uh, Three different things at the three different schools. But what I finally settled on was journalism. And I have a bachelor degree in journalism with an emphasis on public relations.
1: Excellent. Okay, so when you were young, high school, junior high, even elementary school, were there sports? Was that part of your life at all?
2: It was. Yeah, sports have always been a part of my life. Okay. Um, my dad was active. Uh, he was one of the few dads I knew who went to the gym, who mm-hmm. ran on the track. We used to go to the local junior high school and watch him run a mile you know, four laps around the track while we...
1: Wait, he was training and you were watching or yeah, he was in a race?
2: He was just training. He just wow. used to just stay fit. And this was back in the 60s. So it wasn't, I mean, he never did any races or anything. Um, he played basketball and football in, in high school uh, and in junior high school. And he just used to be fit. He used mm-hmm. to lift weights. He used to go to the gym. And that was something we did with him.
1: I love that. So he put an impression upon you at that point that healthy, healthy lifestyle choice, you know,
2: was the way to go. Uh, He ate, ate healthy, Mm -hmm. uh, and so we would go to the gym. We would. uh, I got involved in sports at a pretty young age. What kind of sports? Uh, I played basketball a lot because I was. Pretty tall for my age. You still are. Though. I still am tall, uh, <laughs> but uh, my age is kept up, but I, but I was over six feet tall in junior high school. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I'm six foot four now. I know it. I don't sound that tall on the radio <laughs> or on the podcast. Um, uh, but, uh, a, but you know, so freshman year in high school, I was six foot four. Oh, so nice. I played basketball in high school and a little bit in college.
0: Okay.
2: I wasn't a superstar by any means. It was a very small school, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I used to run just to get in shape for basketball.
1: Okay, got it.
2: Um, so I wasn't a super competitive runner. I ran cross-country and track, but mainly just to, to get fit for basketball. Okay. But my first trophy, I do remember, my, I still have my first ever trophy.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, I won the Cub Scout Olympics, which...
1: What in the heck was that? Yeah,
2: it's something that the little local area, Pomona Cub Scouts did. And it was, I think it was... Uh, you know, standing broad jump and, you know, maybe a sprint and maybe a mile run or something. I can't remember the exact I'd sports love it was. It. Yeah, but I was like 10 years old. Mm-hmm. I think I won it two years in a row. Mm-hmm. And so I was active uh, as a kid. And,
1: and mom was influencing this as well and your siblings?
2: Uh, my brother was fairly active. He played football and ran track. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have two sisters and they were not as active. And my mom was not as active. So it really was just the influence of my dad.
1: Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. So when you went into high school, you were still playing basketball?
2: Playing basketball. And uh, I relocated to a very, very small town in Illinois uh, with my mom, who relocated there with her second husband. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a very small school. uh, And my senior class, uh, which was 40 years ago, I graduated from high school 40 years ago, uh, had forty eight students. I wasn't going
1: to ask your age, but yeah,
2: that's okay. Uh, I'm fifty eight. <laughs> now
1: that we've gone there, yeah, now that we've gone there, I'm fifty eight. So <laughs> okay. I graduated
2: from high school forty years ago.
1: Okay.
2: Um, and played basketball for this very very small school, and I was the, the the leading scorer and rebounder. But it was a very small school, so I I don't I don't pretend uh, that any illusions that I was a you know superstar player. No, mm-hmm. I was definitely not Michael Jordan. The only thing we had in common is. He played in Illinois, and I played in Illinois. That's the only thing that's, Michael Jordan and I have hey, in common. Hey, that's
1: brotherhood right there. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're tight.
1: So this is in high school. You're still playing basketball.
2: Play, uh, playing basketball, running, running cross country. Fitness,
1: uh, running cross country. Running for fitness.
2: Okay. Um, I played a little bit in, in college, very little bit for a very small school in Illinois, and just kept running. And then I realized I was enjoying the running more than the basketball. I had some knee injuries that... that prevented me from, from continuing on with basketball, but it didn't prevent me from running. Mm. So uh, that's when I just started running road races. My dad was already doing road races at that time. This was the late 70s, early 80s. And road racing, that was in its first big boom. Yeah. And uh, I remember he was living in California and I was living in Illinois. And I remember, uh, I mean, he would send me pictures. He's like, yeah, I did a 10K. I did a half marathon. I thought, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Again, not too many of my friend's parents are out running 10Ks. Right. Um, and he started running, the, he ran the first L.A. marathon in 1986, and he ran like the first 10 L.A. marathons. He ran marathons practically before I did.
1: Well, at um, what point did you do that with him, or was this ever something well, you guys actually we, no, did no, we, we've
2: run many races together. Wow. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I would come out and visit him when I was living out of state, either in Illinois or Oklahoma or something because I finished uh, college in Oklahoma, and he was still in California because he was teaching. He was finishing his teaching career in California, Southern California. We'd go out and we'd run 5Ks together, 10Ks together. Um, That's cool. There's a couple of times when we would run marathons together. Mm. uh, And one fun thing we did only about 10 years ago, it wasn't that long ago, we ran, um, I ran a marathon, he ran a half marathon, same start, same finish. Mm. So I caught him uh, with about half a mile to go. That's awesome. Slapped him on the butt when I went by, you know, told him to pick up the pace. (laughs) So, yeah. So, um, he wasn't a fast runner, but he was a steady runner. Um, so I was able to, you know, catch him even though I'd run twice as far.
1: Is dad still with us?
2: Dad's still with us. Okay. Uh, and he's still active. Mm -hmm. He's had some heart issues and some knee issues and back issues. He's 80 years old. Uh, but he still goes to the gym, he still works out, he still stays fit. Uh, I think his long-distance running days are behind him, but he can still walk a 5K. Mm -hmm. He uh, uh, and my sister walked the uh, Monterey Bay Half Marathon 5K called the Pacific Grove Lighthouse 5K last November of 2017, so he can still get out and do a 5K.
1: I love it. Well, at some point, you took your own fitness to the next level. So I know that you're, you do triathlons, you road bike, you mountain bike. Um, you're obviously a runner. When did you decide that long-distance endurance sports specifically was something you were interested in? What age was this?
2: This was in my early 20s when okay. I pretty much hung up the basketball shoes and decided that running was kind of my thing. And I was living at that point in Oklahoma. And uh, they had a very active road racing community. Mm -hmm. A lot of local road races, good local running clubs, races all over the state. And I just got connected into that community, Mm -hmm. uh, into that tribe, Mm -hmm. one of your favorite words. (laughs) And um, just started traveling around the state doing road races. Um, I was going to school. And then when I finished school, I just kept road racing. And uh, that kind of led into my being... A professional race director. Uh, I had a degree in journalism and okay. I loved running. So naturally, all the running clubs or wherever I lived wanted me to be, the, be their newsletter editor. Oh, the, awesome. Yeah. You know how to write. <laughs> this is pre-computer this. days. So yeah. things were done just by typewriter. This is, again, the early 80s. Wow. Maybe some initial computer work. Um, so I got involved in editing local running club newsletters. Mm-hmm. And that eventually led to a statewide running magazine called Oklahoma runner,
1: Oklahoma runner. Yeah. Does that still exist?
2: It does still exist. I believe it still exists. Digital
1: format, but Uh, yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, And so I was the editor of the first statewide running magazine in Oklahoma.
1: That's so cool. And it was
2: full, and they, they, that was
1: like a full-time job. We made it
2: into a full-time job. Wow. Yeah. And then I was directing races as part of the promotions for that. So that was in 1984.
1: So that was your first spin at race director? My
2: first spin at race director. I'd, I'd been volunteering mm-hmm. uh, for several years, uh, for three or four years, but that was first time I really got paid to be both a race director and a running journalist. So that was, um, what, 34 years ago.
1: So right out of college, you already got an opportunity to take your passion for endurance sports and running and your education and create a career.
2: Yeah, it just turned out that way, to yeah. combine my vocation with my avocation. Yeah. Something I loved was something uh, I was trained to do: write, mm-hmm. take the pictures, mm-hmm. layout magazines. And you
1: were a photographer.
2: Yeah, just mm-hmm. rudimentary sports photography. Yeah, you know, had a little dark room in the basement. You know, again, this is pre-digital photography days. Um, you know, black and white film and all that stuff that a few listeners might remember <laughs> what that was like. <laughs> Develop your own film <laughs> and make your prints in the basement. I love it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, back in the early '80s.
1: Wow. So at what juncture did you decide you needed to take this to the next level leave Oklahoma? Where,
2: well, uh, where to go? Yeah, I was very fortunate and and I just kind of things kind of came to me in Oklahoma. So I was I was editing the statewide running magazine, then I was asked to direct the largest run in the state, which at that time was called the Tulsa Run. Tulsa Run still exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was in 1987 and 1988. And we had the largest years in the Tulsa Run's history in, the, in that time period. Again, this was a kind of a boom and running mm. in the uh, mid to late 80s. Uh, we had 11,000 entrants one wow. year. Wow, that's phenomenal. It's a 15K, uh, which is kind of unusual distance uh, uh, along the banks of the Arkansas River. And so I was the director of that. And I got recruited to to move to Ohio to direct the Columbus Marathon. Uh, they had just, the the organization for the Columbus Marathon had just gotten the rights to direct the 1992 U.S. Men's Olympic Marathon Trials. Exciting. Yeah. Special one-off race for qualifiers only. That's the way the U.S. selects their Olympic team, is they have a qualifying race, and only the top three finishers go to the Olympics. Uh, some countries select their Olympic teams by time. Uh, uh, you know whoever has the best performances or, or other subjective uh, decision making. the US uses a trials format.
1: And you got invited to be part of this team.
2: Yeah, they they recruited me to become the race director of both the regular Columbus Marathon and then the special trials that were holding in 1992. So it was kind of a three year buildup. Wow for this event. How old were you? Uh, 28.
1: Yeah, young.
2: Yeah, I was I was younger than most of the runners. I was directing
1: exactly, <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it was fun. So so that was a buildup from nineteen eighty eight through the trials, nineteen eighty nine, I guess, through the trials in nineteen ninety two, in Columbus, Ohio.
1: So you moved there.
2: I moved so to you Ohio. Went all
1: in on this project. Oh
2: yeah, mm-hmm. all in, and was the race director there through mid nineteen ninety four. So I directed the regular marathon and directed the special Olympic trials marathon, which was a separate marathon. Different trials have been handled different ways. Uh, sometimes now the the trials are often the day before a regular marathon Mm -hmm. on a closed like criterium multi-loop course. At that time we had a separate marathon six months apart from the regular Columbus marathon on a full citywide course. Oh
1: my goodness. Yeah.
2: So we put on a full marathon, through the uh, streets of Columbus for a hundred people,
1: expensive. It
2: was expensive. It was mm-hmm. over over a million dollars exactly. back in, even in 1992.
1: Unbelievable.
2: We had uh, I think two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in prize money, national TV coverage, etc. Um, so you can imagine, for operationally, it was quite different. We had to close the streets and provide aid stations, but you only had a hundred people, and they were all running about two thirty pace or oh. faster.
1: Awesome. Yeah. I've been to trials once. It's very exciting to watch, but I can't imagine producing that race for a hundred people and then just a okay, full loop course. It's over.
2: Yeah. So the aid stations, some of them were done in 15 minutes.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: But you still needed a full stock aid stations, mile marks, road closures, et cetera. Yeah. They don't do it like that anymore. <laughs> probably because probably it's not probably because sufficient. it's too hard. Yes, yeah. Exactly. It's not, it's not very efficient to yeah. close 26 miles of streets for a hundred people. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, you're doing this, And you're still relatively young and getting a lot of really deep experience right Mm -hmm. out of the gate in your career. Like, did you decide already or were you still in the throes of of determining this is really what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? I love this. It's phenomenal. Or like, holy shit, how did I actually get here? Why am I doing this? And is this really what I'm supposed to be doing with my life?
2: Uh, I don't know that I, you know, ever thought about it quite so, uh, <laughs> uh, high level, um,
1: or deep or for deep that matter.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I have enjoyed it. It's been now, you know, over 30 years,
1: 30 years of race directing, 30
2: years of race directing. Mm. Um, it, it's hard work. You know, you work very long hours, yeah. uh, and there's a lot of stress and pressure, you know, we work so other people can play. Mm-hmm. So we have to work whatever it takes, whether it's evenings with. A lot of volunteer meetings are in the evenings. It's weekends, whether you're promoting your race, helping other races, obviously your own races on the weekend and a regular all time, uh, a regular during the week job as well, Mm -hmm. nine to five as well. Yeah. So, um, but you wouldn't do it if you didn't love the outcome. Mm -hmm. And it's still exciting to me to produce an event, to see the reaction of people at the finish line, to see the tears of joy of somebody finishing their first marathon to see the volunteers out helping, uh, perfect strangers, encouraging them, giving them a cup of water, uh, keeping the course safe, handing them their shirt, you know, um, medical staff, public safety staff. Uh, so it, it it's the community coming together for a common good, and that's still as exciting now as it was 30 years ago.
1: If you think about the value system it requires for aligning, you know, People to do something like this to um, actually produce a race of any scale size. You've been part of big, um, you know, and small races and had a lot of experience. But mm-hmm. if you think about the value system that that really represents, how does that correlate with your own personal value system, and and why do those things align?
2: Well, I think uh, as a participant for four decades. I mean, I probably have run, I don't even keep track anymore, but easily five to 600 races on my own. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't do that much racing anymore, but back in the 20s and 30s, I would race, you know, like every other weekend or something. Uh, My philosophy has always been, would I enjoy that event? I'd like to put on races I would enjoy participating in that provide good value, that are safe, that are enjoyable, and that are well-produced with the resources you have available, not everybody, you know, not every race do you have an unlimited budget, of course. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you're short on space or people or, or sponsors right. or beauty or whatever it is. Uh, but if I know if I just try to use that as my guiding light, my North star, mm-hmm. would I enjoy this race, does it make sense for me as a participant? I think that's that philosophy, I guess, is something I followed now for over three decades.
1: Mm-hmm. Yourself as an athlete and your own race experience, which, which is vast, mm-hmm. can you reflect back into what you would consider to be a favorite race because of the experience? So not because it was a marquee race and I got the opportunity to run New York or Boston or something like that, but like something that was maybe unique and very personal and therefore one of your favorites.
2: From my own participation. You personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, five or 600 races uh, into my career, it's it's a little hard to find one or two. But I think, I think the ones that stick out are the events that have such an impact on our community. Uh, for example, the Bloomsday race in Spokane, Washington. You know, here's a city community of a couple hundred thousand people, but they have a race with over 50,000. People. So everybody knows about Bloomsday. It's a 12K uh, in May in Spokane, Washington. And they're either involved as a participant, as a volunteer, as a sponsor, as a service group, uh, something. Boulder Boulder is another example.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Memorial Day Mm -hmm. in
2: Colorado. Again, 40,000 people. Uh, So seeing, I, I think it's fascinating how something as simple as running down the street has created this, this community that has changed other communities. I mean, it's the community of runners has changed the larger community. It's affected uh, trail building networks. It's affected, um, you know, public safety. People, communities now are sometimes thinking when they're designing a park or a parkway, can this accommodate runners? Can this accommodate a race? Yeah. Um, there was, when I lived in Oklahoma, they were renovating um, a particular park and they actually went to the running club and said, we're going to build a, a new road in this park. Mm. Why don't we build it together and you help design it so that's that you awesome. can have races on this road? Mm-hmm. Because it's just a park that's conducive to it. And we mm-hmm. actually wasn't, were involved with making sure that road was exactly had an exact 5K loop. We worked mm-hmm. with the engineers and said, it's perfect. So you can have a 5K, a 10K, a 15K, 20K, all just by doing multiple laps around this road and uh that was a just a kind of a public private partnership but it benefited the running community. You know, I don't know that that would have been done 50 years ago.
1: Well, that reminds me and this is, you know, you have certified the slow marathon course. That's also part of what you do is that you go out to race courses, you help design them, you certify them. So there's an engineer in you and there's a different um aspect to Doug that is interested in that side of the sport. What's that about?
2: Well, I'll never be accused of being a mathematician. <laughs> 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 and uh, I think you're the, probably the only ones ever called me an engineer uh, <laughs> because, you know, my background is in words, in communication, mm. not in uh, numbers.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: but what I think journalism taught me is the importance of being accurate uh, and Whether it's, you know, representing uh, an interview accurately, uh, quoting someone accurately, or in this case, it making sure a course is accurate. Mm -hmm. And I think that translates again into if I were running a race, I'd want it to be accurate. Mm -hmm. So that got me involved in course measurement. I had several great mentors, including Pete Regal from Columbus, Ohio, who just recently passed away. Uh, Ron Scardera from Los Angeles, still active in the measurement community, David Katz from New York, even Ted Corbett with the New York Roadrunners. These are people who helped develop these systems for measuring road races, some of them who have trained me in it. Um, so, yes, I'm a, a what's called an IAAF uh, Level A Measurer, which is a, a particular type of class of measurements just kind of based on, on experience. Uh, It's the highest level of certification, so to speak, of course measurement.
1: Course nerds. Course nerds. Complete
2: course nerds. I love it. Yeah, we got the vest, we got the the calculator, we got the thermometer, we got the pins in our pocket. Totally. Um, Yeah, we're, we're total course nerds. But what's interesting and what probably most listeners don't understand is every certified course in the world is measured exactly the same way using exactly the same equipment and exactly the same methodology. And and that's true whether you're measuring the Rio Olympic course or the local Rotary Club 5K, all done the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a standard there that's maintained. And that's an integrity. Goodness. Yeah, that, I think that is important. Mm-hmm. Whether, uh, whether we're redesigning the slow marathon and measuring it, and it's all done by bicycle, it's all done, you know, there's two measurers or two different measurements done and, You know, you try to measure the course the way it will be run on race day, et cetera. Um, So that way when, you know, it it, it falls into my philosophy of runners are chosen to come to that event. They've paid their money. They've made the decision. They had lots of options, including not doing it at all, running down the street for free. Mm -hmm. But if they're going to pay the money and make the effort to come to your race, you owe it to them to give them what they expect. That's right. An accurate course, a safe course. Good refreshments, good water stations, a decent T-shirt, accurate timing, you know, nice quality awards, you know, all these different things, post-race refreshments, uh, a good announcer, entertainment, etc. And those things have changed through the years for sure, but whatever it is that you think runners are expecting, you want to do the best you can to provide it with the resources you have available.
1: At some point, you transitioned to work for a much bigger engine and went to Competitor Group and the Rock and Roll series and so forth. What year was that?
2: Yeah, I, I went to Competitor Group in June of 2009. Um, it was a huge growth period. I'd been in Sacramento directing mainly local races for 15 years prior to that. Relocated to San Diego and joined what uh, what is the largest race management company in the world really um Still in terms is. of the number of events uh not not in the quantity of events but the quantity of participants mm-hmm. you know at one time rock and roll series had like four to five hundred thousand finishers in their races um 24 Different cities across the U.S. at one time, et cetera.
1: They recruited you for the band, right? <laughs> rock and roll. They said this guy—he's the guy.
2: I, I was not a bass player. Uh, I was not. <laughs> a, got the hair. I, I don't have the rock star hair. Uh, I cannot do the splits and play the guitar.
1: You might want to work on those things. Uh,
2: but what I could do is uh, organize courses. So yeah. I was doing course operations in several different markets around the country, and that included designing, measuring. Just producing everything between the start and the finish. A lot of and traveling. A lot of travel. Mm. Yeah. It was a lot of travel. Um, I spent a lot of time in, in cities that I had not spent much time in before, like Providence, Rhode Island, Miami Beach, New Orleans, Savannah, Georgia, San Antonio, uh, Virginia Beach. Those are some of the markets that I was responsible for, uh, and as well as San Diego, the home market where competitor group is based.
1: Mm-hmm. And you still do a little side work for them, don't you?
2: I do, yeah. The, the, primarily for San Diego and San Francisco, I still help measure their courses, and I they like me to come down or go up and do course operations. Just making sure, again, what the runners see on race day is accurate and easy to follow.
1: Mm-hmm. At some point, you decided to get into triathlon and mountain biking, so... At what point did you say, let's mix this up? You know, a little bit less (laughs) running and a little more cycling?
2: Well, Maybe some swimming? Yeah, that was an interesting uh, development. Um, So primarily it was basketball, then primarily just road running. And when I was in Oklahoma running races like crazy, some of my fellow runners got into this new thing called triathlons. And this was in the early to mid-80s. 80s, 80s, yeah. Yeah. And they said, oh, you know, it's fun. Spandex. Spandex, Speedos, the whole thing. And it was, you know, you swim and you bike. And I didn't really know how to swim, you know, lap swim or anything. I could survive, but I didn't know how to lap swim. And I didn't really have a bike. So, um, but that didn't, you know, those things could be taken care of. Mm -hmm. So I started doing triathlons back in the mid to late 80s. I actually used to race, not against, because I don't want to misrepresent my skill level, race with Lance Armstrong.
1: Excellent! I love it.
2: He was a high school kid. Oh, that's so cool. uh, in Plano, Texas.
1: Yeah,
2: 15 years old, and his mom would drive him from Plano, which is outside of Dallas, up to Oklahoma, and he would like completely blow away the fields in these triathlons in Tulsa, primarily. You would draft off him, of course. <laughs> yeah. Oh no,
1: triathlon was not drafting. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, so here's a 15 year old man child. Man child. You know, <laughs> winning. Overall, these these triathlons, and of course, you know, Lance, most people don't really realize he was a professional triathlete yeah. before he was a professional cyclist. He was recruited to become a cyclist because he was such a strong. He was a good swimmer and a decent runner, but he was a super strong cyclist. So, anyway, the rest, as we know, is is history.
1: How so, long were you doing tries? You're still doing tries, I
2: think. I, yeah, so I yeah. I did them in Oklahoma in the late '80s. And then when I moved to Ohio to direct the Columbus Marathon, I continued to do triathlons and then stopped in about 1990, 1991. Just, you know, the sport was getting more expensive. Uh, My job was becoming a little more demanding and I just had a hard time keeping up with the swimming and biking. Especially
1: when you're traveling.
2: Especially when you're traveling. So I took about a 25 year break from doing triathlons. I still biked, I I rode bike, century rides. Uh, started to get into mountain biking, including racing, and did a lot of mountain bike racing in the uh, mid-2000s uh, in the, when I was living in Sacramento, a real air, uh, prime mountain biking area. So did a ton of mountain bike racing and still do that. Um, and then when I moved to Monterey, after went from Sacramento to San Diego and then took the Big Sur job, There's a healthy triathlon community here in the central coast of California.
1: What year was that? Did you transition here?
2: I moved here in 2013.
1: Okay.
2: So Mm -hmm. I've been in, I've been the Big Sur Marathon Race Director and Executive Director of the organization for five years now. And not long after moving here, I just found these people that were really into triathlons Mm -hmm. in part because there were such good local races.
1: Sure, in the oceans here.
2: Triathlon at Pacific Grove and Wildflower. So there's a healthy triathlon community on central coast. And they said, you should get a wetsuit and swim with us in the ocean and start lap swimming. And you know you like to bike. So I got back into it after 25 years.
1: I love it. And you're still doing it.
2: Yeah, I have a half Ironman that I'm training for for the end of July Mm -hmm. of 2018.
1: Um, At some point we'll race together and it'll be super fun. It will
2: be super fun. Uh, Just be gentle with me. (laughs) Dude, Uh, you're
1: so much taller than me, I'm pretty sure you'll crush me on every leg.
2: That's not an advantage, being tall. (laughs) It's primarily a disadvantage. Well, I wanted Uh, to draft
1: off you on the bike, so as long as we strategize on that, and the swim for that matter.
2: Yeah, maybe you could draft off, drafting on the swimming and running (laughs) is the only thing that's legal in in, uh, most triathlons. Um, So yeah, I've enjoyed kind of reconnecting, Um, so I, I swim two, three days a week. I like doing long bike rides, century rides, et cetera, Mm -hmm. and I still like mountain biking. So actually the weakest part of my uh, athletic career or athletic uh, environment right now is probably my running, (laughs) which is ironic, uh, but that's part of age. Age is a part of that.
1: What is your worst race experience, whether you didn't finish because the wheels fell off the bus or some other crazy, insane thing happened that just made for it. And it could be worse and you really got something out of it. It doesn't have to be that it was horrible and, you know, but like the most um, slightly nuts race experience you've had personally.
2: Well, I think the, the, the most painful experiences have been when the body is, has broken down and, and, you know, any endurance athlete experiences that. And for me, it's generally cramping.
1: Okay. Uh, prone to cramps, or that was just a fluke?
2: No, I, I, I guess I'm prone to cramping in that okay. I'm a fairly heavy sweater. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, just that finding that balance of electrolytes to kind of keep it going. And this is in longer, you know, century rides, mm-hmm. long mountain bike rides.
1: Cramping to the point of what? Like
2: uh, just being unable to, to-, to finish. Sometimes well no, I think I usually finish, but just really have to walk and stop and stretch and agony some and some misery pain was
1: involved.
2: Misery is involved. Oh good. Yeah. We like yeah. a little suffering. Thank you for your sadistic <laughs> enjoyment. There. I wanna know
1: there's other people out there suffering besides me, Dad. Well, especially you. I feel better already.
2: Suffering is part of the joy of endurance. Right. Yeah. Because it 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 pushes your body in ways uh, you know that, that challenge you. So, I think that's part. Sure, I've crashed in mountain bike races, you know, and crossed the finish line, you know, blood dripping down my elbows and down my knees and things like that. Crashing in mountain bike races is just kind of par for the course. Mm-hmm. I haven't, uh, knock on wood, suffered any, you know, severe injuries through crashes, I have no broken bones or anything like that. So,
1: well, speaking of suffering, mm-hmm. mentally. So, races that you've had to dig deep and what kind of mental training have you you know really received doing long-distance endurance sports?
2: Well I guess I take a little different attitude on that. I, I, I'm never going to inspire somebody with my you know personal story of you know heroic overcoming tough circumstances and things like that um, and I mainly just do these events because I enjoy it. Mm. And so I try to keep it fun. I try. I I, I enjoy the camaraderie of racing with other. So people. So you're a
1: social racer.
2: I'm a social racer. Yeah, I like to be. I like to go as fast as I can. Sure. And, and
1: talking it, to people simultaneously. So well. you're social and you're going fast. What does this look like? We're definitely not racing together now. This. I'm out.
2: <laughs> well, if it involves talking, Samantha, you'll be great at it.
1: Oh, nice.
2: Uh, I just mean, as far as you, you know, if I'm in a mountain bike race with somebody and yeah. we're suffering up a long climb. Okay. Y- you know, we're, it's not me against him. It's us against the mountain Got uh, it. or it's off a, us against a, a slippery turn. So we can try to stay on our bikes and, you know, not end up in a ditch somewhere. Um, yeah. I try to go as fast as I can. Uh, I'm certainly not as fast as I used to be, you know, who is after three or four decades of, of endurance. It's sports, all relative. It's all relative. Uh, but I, you know, if I'm hurting, I just slow down, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't, uh, I'm just not one of those, not a
1: fan of the pain cave. Well, or... I,
2: I, it's, it's painful enough. Okay. Uh, but I just, I live to fight another day. You mm-hmm. know, I, mm-hmm. it's, I'm, I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to inspire someone of, uh, you know, he just came overcame. You, you know, the obstacles and no one's going to make any movies with me crossing a finish line in slow motion. Let's put it that
1: way. <laughs> On your hands and knees? On my hands
2: and knees. Okay. No, it's just, that's just not, that's well, not Well, it how sounds
1: like, um, the intellectual side of you, cause you definitely have that piece to your personality is more rational. And as soon as the pain caves within sight, you decide that you maybe need to dial it back. So it's just in, you know, your intelligence says it might be wise for me to slow down or to do this differently and not, you know, pitch into the abyss because maybe I'm not going to come back from that. Why is that though, out of my own curiosity now, could you go there? Would you be willing to go there? Or it just, there's no appeal at all to,
2: well, uh, again, there's suffering is kind of inherent in completing some of these longer distance events. So, um, you know, if I'm doing a century ride, you know, the last, 15 miles are, are going to hurt a little bit
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: and I don't mind that but I could never do something like the race across America where you ride your bike for like 22 hours a day for 10 straight days. Why not? Uh, because it would hurt.
1: Yeah, <laughs> It would hurt too much. And then what?
2: And, and, and I, I I see no value in, in, for me personally, I mean, I admire and I love reading those stories. Yeah. And I love, I've, I've watched videos of the race across America. And I love uh, the stories of the bad water. And, and um, I used to announce uh, one of the other things I, I do a little bit of, I uh, did a lot more of it when I was in Sacramento, but I do finish line announcing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I used to announce at the finish line of the Western States, 100 mile. Mm-hmm all night long because finishers were coming in from 10 o'clock at night until 11 o'clock the next morning. So all night long, you're announcing people finishing. That's inspiring to me. That's a great I, mean, I would, me. I would break down in tears, announcing these people, For reading sure. their bios, seeing, hearing the things that they've overcome, mm-hmm. a cancer or, you know, this or that. Um, I'm just not one of those. Like I said, no one's going to announce anything important about me when I cross the finish line. I just enjoy it and have a good time. I have a lot, I have natural talent. You know, I'm, So I just do what I can, but I don't push myself beyond, you know, I mean, I I don't mind the pain, but Mm -hmm. when it hurts, I slow down. Mm -hmm. When it hurts a lot, I really slow down. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just, I I don't have a choice. I just don't, I find that, I mean, I, I admire people who overcome that. Yeah. I'm just not one of them.
1: Yeah. Interesting.
2: Interesting.
1: So here you are, you're doing athletics, you're doing triathlon now. Um, You're still doing mountain biking and road cycling and doing a lot of running. An occasional
2: half marathon or so.
1: And you're still young and healthy and fit.
2: I'm fortunate. I'm very fortunate. Injury-free healthy and fit, yeah.
1: Are there uh, any fun races on the horizon? And maybe not a race, but a personal goal for some kind of adventure challenge or climb this mountain and things like that? Because I do know that about you, too, that you have a real great sense of adventure. Anything on the horizon?
2: Well, something I'm doing that, that is adventurous um, uh, and some people consider extreme, but, but those in the endurance community probably less so. As I am signed up for the death ride,
1: you are, yeah, which
2: is a 129 mile road bike ride.
1: But you're not a fan of suffering, just to be clear.
2: No, I'll still suffer. I mean, okay. it'll be hard, but 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 I'm training for it. So yes, I mean, it'll You'll be, be prepared. Hopefully, it'll be you know 10 hours of riding. It'll be 129 miles, 16,000 feet of vertical climbing. Where
1: does that take place?
2: It's south of Lake Tahoe in what they kind of call the California Alps, various uh, mountain passes south of Lake Tahoe. Uh, but that's just steady grinding away. But it's fun, I mean, that- it, <laughs> But it's fun. <laughs> yeah, you know, Some people wouldn't consider a half hour climb on a, on a road bike, steady where you're climbing from 6,000 to 8,500 feet, fun. But I, but I like that, mm-hmm. I like climbing, I like descending, 45, 50 miles an hour is fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, i mean, that's—that's that's a challenge, it, and it—it—it's—it's it's a little scary. It's a little scary to go that fast.
1: Yeah. See, that's your edge, Doug.
2: A little bit. That's but, your but edge. But again, this, I don't consider that very extreme. That's just trying to get down the mountain without. It's
1: extreme to most of America it's sitting to, in a cubicle maybe right now. So. so to be clear. Yeah. Maybe uh, it is extreme. Travis is to raising sun. his hand. Maybe Bentley just jumped off your lap because
2: yeah, it was—you know—the the thought extreme. of it may have, may have scared my cat off my lap. <laughs> but. um uh,
1: so that's it, it is the a edge. It is a
2: challenge. Uh-huh. I like to challenge myself. Triathlons are scary. It's, I mean, yeah. I think it's Open good to, water, right? Open water swimming. Thousands
1: of people. They're like it's swimming scary. over us. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. Uh,
2: so even after four decades of doing this, I still kind of get the the stomach butterflies and, uh, you know, what's this going to be like? And if 80, 100 miles into this 129 mile ride, it, it'll be like, oh, why am I doing this? But I, <laughs> But I know why I'm doing it. to see to see if I can
1: was there something instilled in you whether it's from your dad because it seems like he was a big influence or somebody else in your life long process into the person the man you are today who was an inspiration in this way
2: well I think my dad certainly was what's Uh, your dad's name Harry Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
2: and and his mother actually was in in her own way too she was a a single mom after her husband, my grandfather, passed away when my dad was very young, and uh, she raised three sons. And uh, which back in the you know forties uh, and fifties was unusual, yeah. you know, for a woman. And she was she worked you know at a bank, and you know, I mean she was she, professional. Wow. she was professional. Uh, and raised three sons who went on to have great careers as a doctor and a mm. and a, a music conductor and a teacher. Uh, and just, I I think what was instilled in me from from that side of my family uh, was just keep working away at it. Just, you know, have a goal, keep working at it and don't give up. Now, again, I'm not going to, you know, ride my bike 30 days across the country. So that's, that's you do idea.
1: know I'm going to probably think that that is going to happen at some point. Well, You're I mean, going to call yeah. me up and be like, "I'm doing I'm it." I'm in Missouri. Prove crazy and I'm going to be like, in
2: <laughs> I just don't. I just don't want Or bad water. I don't. I don't think of myself like I'm, I'm not going to do a hundred mile running race, right?
1: Oh, really? Or a 500
2: mile bike race or something like that. Um, but I'll do a hundred mile uh, bike ride because to me that's that's comfortably. Extreme.
1: Comfortably uncomfortable.
2: Comfortably uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, I know I can handle that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I push myself within the zone that, that I've developed. But, it, but it's, it's far lower than a lot of other people's zones.
1: You are a creature of habit and of routine and methodologies and all that. It would really be fun to see you totally off the rails in some way shape or form I don't know what that looks like but I'm gonna think of something to invite you to or that might just happen
2: <laughs> well it
1: might just go down one that's of
2: scarier guys. than an open water swim <laughs> thinking right. about that.
1: Yeah. I'm going to turn 50 next year. Maybe it's something I'm doing on my 50th birthday, and we'll have to just see if Doug can get out of his comfort zone and show up to that.
2: Maybe so. I, I guess, uh, you know, you're not the first person to make that observation, Samantha, and thank mm-hmm. you for broadcasting that to the rest of the West, <laughs> the known world.
1: It's not a negative.
2: Let's hope we edit it's that one out, please, on the director's cut. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not. I'm <laughs> fine with that. No, I, I probably do live, compared to a lot of people, you know, i, I I guess I live a controlled life and that I you know, I'm I'm not married, I don't have children, I just have my cat and uh so I'm this able to this cat's
1: amazing by the way. And yeah, I think Bentley wants out, but and he probably does um, we're want busy out. right now,
2: Bentley. Yeah, uh, yeah. We'll let him out. So he's gonna go bug somebody and see if he can beg a treat <laughs> off someone. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I guess uh, in some view... I
1: think you have a family. Your family is enormous. It's called the endurance sport. I, you're right. It's called this community, this running community, but also in terms of athletics. Otherwise, you belong to tri-clubs and cycling clubs and running clubs. I mean, you have a massive family and friends Correct. You know, in the industry Correct. like myself.
2: Correct. I'm just fortunate in that I, I I'm, I'm not really that responsible for other people, so I can kind of build my life around my work and working out. Mm-hmm. And, um, again, I, I, don't compared to some, I don't take it to, I don't think I could take it to extreme levels. Yeah. Sure. I get up early in the morning and swim, bike, run, or some combination of the two just yeah. about every day. But so do a lot of other people.
1: Yeah. That's just who You are.
2: You yeah. It's just lifestyle. Yeah, I've been, yeah, been doing it my that whole, whole, life. whole life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know what it's, I don't know what it's like to not exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been injured and had to take some time off. Mm-hmm. We all have, but, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'll be heading to my 40th high school reunion. Wow.
1: What high school?
2: Uh, it's a very, very small school called Nauvoo Calusa High School. It doesn't even exist anymore. What it's town? so small. Nauvoo, Illinois. Wow.
1: 1,100
2: people. An- in the
1: whole
2: town? Uh, in the whole town. 1,100 Not people. Not in the high
1: school. In the town? No,
2: there was uh, 200 people in the high school. And it was a combination of other communities that, that went into the school. It wasn't just the school. You 40th? Forty-three reunion. So, uh, and it'll be fun to see how
1: many t- people are going to be there.
2: Probably thirty. What? Yeah, because there's only forty-eight in. Are you going to see
1: your old high school girlfriend?
2: I uh, probably not. Okay. Uh, she was a grade lower than me, so okay. I think I'll be able to avoid that <laughs> awkwardness. <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, but I guess my point is, um, not a lot of those uh, folks at my reunion will. Uh, Live an active lifestyle,
1: mm-hmm. an
2: endurance-based lifestyle.
1: Yeah,
2: they they do other things. You know, they, they have other things that they're interested. So, they may look at me and see, okay, gosh, you know, I only weigh five, ten pounds different than I weighed forty years ago. Mm-hmm. But I don't know any other way. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I guess I'm lucky that way. Sometimes it's picking the right parents, it's genetics. But I think it is just I've I've been fortunate to be able to live an active, endurance lifestyle so I I don't know any other way.
1: Well, that's interesting. If maybe you have other hobbies and I just don't know about them and also when, if you ever retire and by the way, why even retire and maybe you won't, but um, are there other hobbies that you're kind of interested in pursuing or are you already pursuing other things I don't know about? For example, you have a writing skill. Are you doing anything with that or is there something in the music world or?
2: I'm not musical, no. Uh, I'm a very big public radio nerd. You are? I am a big public radio What are you nerd.
1: listening to on public radio? I listen
2: to Fresh Air. I listen to, uh, you know, This American Life. Oh, I listen to wow. a, a lot of public radio programs. Nice. I volunteer with the local public radio station. To do what? Fundraising drives. I answer the phones. I record PSAs. Oh,
1: this is awesome. Public
2: service announcements. I go into the studio and, you know, take You're calls. A You're an like on-air
1: that. personality?
2: Not an on-air personality <laughs> on a regular basis, but... Uh, I have a face for radio and, um, <laughs> I have a voice for, that, that, you do uh, goes well on the radio. radio. Again, yeah. I, you know, thanks dad for that. He, my dad was a singer and my, my mother was a singer too. So I inherited good, a good, uh, speaking voice. I can't sing, but I have mm. a good speaking voice. So, and I just, I, I like high quality, um, accurate, um, entertainment performances whether it's music or you know interviews or magazines or books things like that Mm -hmm. i'm more of a non-fiction i like non-fiction type stuff so
1: Mm -hmm. so best book you've read in the last year or Uh, an article or something that i mean i like like autobiographical
2: and historical you know type works uh my sister-in-law is a writer of endurance books, Gretchen Reynolds, and mm-hmm. and she writes the fitness column for the New York Times. I enjoy her Ooh, stuff. She's cool. written a book. Um, I'm anxious to read um, Dina Castor's new book mm-hmm. uh, about the kind of the mental strength. Uh, mm-hmm. Becky Wade, an elite runner, she wrote an excellent book mm-hmm. about running around the world. She had a, a, a scholar, uh, like a scholarship type. So she was able to travel to different countries and experience different running cultures. That would be awesome. And learn the how they eat, how they train. Whether it's Kenya and Finland, Kenya and Finland, and Japan and England and New Zealand and things like that. So I enjoy books like that.
1: History of running. I think you've studied a little bit of that as well, right?
2: Yeah, that's that's been interesting. I certainly, uh, you know, like most people, I love watching the Olympics. But I also, you know, I, I like. I mean, some of these you know, people I know, you know, Frank Shorter, Bill Rogers, Don Cardong, Jeff Galloway. I and mean, these are people that I've worked with and, and interacted with, um, kind of the leaders of our sport, yeah. um, the people that aren't with us anymore, you know, Ted Corbett, uh, Fred LeBeau, um, you know, it's, it's fun to, to, to know that in some small way. You know, I'm carrying a torch too.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, whether
2: it's with this particular organization, the Big Sur Marathon Foundation, the Big Sur Marathon race itself, and our other family of races, um, I think we're all kind of caretakers in this endurance life. Mm. Uh, I mean, how you, so? Well, uh, I mean, I'm fortunate in that I'm I'm now the caretaker of a, of an iconic very well-loved event the big sur marathon yeah uh very endeared yeah it started 33 years ago started by somebody else uh i'm the fourth director of the event there'll be other directors after me hopefully this event will last at least another 33 years Um, it is well revered it's a just a wonderful opportunity for people to run on this magnificent coast of california and there are other events as well, the the Monterey Bay Half Marathon, Run in Name of Love in June, and the Salinas Valley Half Marathon in August.
1: What are you contributing?
2: Well, I'm trying to uh, respect the past of these mm. events.
1: Yeah, the history.
2: The history uh, honor the 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 fact that these events not only are they beautiful, but they're very well managed. And so I want to carry that legacy on. At the same time, they sometimes need updating, whether it's the the logo the branding of it you
1: which recently went through a re-brand. went through
2: a, a well, about then. a two-year rebranding exercise for our organization and our two flagship events the april marathon weekend i'm still waiting November. for my shirt Doug. i have one for you here today excellent Samantha, uh and one for travis your,
1: your producer <laughs> yeah.
2: uh i even have a shirt small enough for bentley i think um <laughs> uh, so you you you, you want to to honor the past but also be current and and see the changing demographics, which I've experienced over thirty plus years.
1: Yeah, we're seeing a lot of changes in the sport. You and I talk about that quite a bit yeah. since we're in the same space, and um, I know we literally
2: f- your events directly comp- directly compete well, with mine. Well, then there's that. that
1: we can arm wrestle. Yeah, we a lot have our later. own events
2: on. Two hours away and you have an event the same weekend as we do. You know, Twice. I
1: want to move our race. So, A, you can be at my race and I can be at yours. Which
2: would be awesome. It would
1: be so fun, actually. Or run them. Yes. Participate Whatever that in looks them. like.
2: Participate yeah. and then critique them.
1: Yes, exactly. In a very nice, loving way. In a nice, way. loving, uh, <laughs> tender,
2: tender, what the heck is that way? Right. Why would you do that way?
1: Exactly. But if we think about our legacy and all the changes that are happening in the sport and how do we make sure it stays healthy and vibrant, um, personally, what's your two cents right now with how you are going to ensure, for example, the legacy of this organization, the Big Sur race races, but just in terms of the sport itself as well, running itself, lots of changes happening. What's your, what's your role
2: here? Well, we certainly have to, to, to be aware of what our audience is looking for. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think we can fight it. Uh, I mean, I, I hear sometimes from purists. Uh, old school. Old school. Uh, you know, well, you shouldn't have bands on the course. You, know, you shouldn't have medals for a 5K for everybody who comes across the line. You know, entry fees should be cheaper. You know, you shouldn't have to do all this stuff. And But that's the stuff the runners like. Mm-hmm. And if they're willing to pay for it, mm-hmm. um, then you, you're just responding. It's, I mean, we're in a customer service industry.
1: Absolutely. And we're in
2: an entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. If they don't choose our events, they're going to choose someone else's events or some other activity completely. Or okay. just do it on their own and not pay anybody to do anything. Okay.
1: Well, ultimately, I mean, and I know you would agree with this, we're here to ensure that people continue to get off the couch and do something. We hope it's running or racing, whatever our events are. Right now we're talking about running. But, I mean, ideally we bring more younger, newer people to the sport, and we want to introduce more and more people to the sport so it's a healthy lifestyle that they adapt. So we have to adapt with them.
2: Yeah, it, it may sound corny, but I think the the ultimate uh... – role of 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 us as event managers is to help make dreams come true Mm. whatever that is you know for everybody we we had the the big sur marathon you know six weeks ago and you know we had roughly 3300 people cross the finish line of the marathon distance we have other distances as well there's 33 different 3300 different reasons why they were here Mm and whether they're honoring um, a person in their family who passed away from cancer last year, which I heard that story, whether they uh, have run every year for the past 32, and they're, they don't know if they can still get under the time limit and number 33, and they made it. Uh, whether this is their first ever marathon, and they said, if I'm gonna do one, it's gonna be Big Sur. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm gonna do one that I've heard is you know the, mo- the prettiest one in the country. Um, whether they want to compete and, you know, win for the overall first prize. Mm -hmm. Um, So everybody has a reason to be there. And we just want to give them the best environment so they can reach that goal. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why it's worth the effort to me.
1: So, Doug, some of the conversations we have are business oriented, Um, and we talk about the impacts that our events have on our communities, on society, um, in all these different formats, social impact, economic impact. It's part of our mission statement. I know it's part of yours. How do you feel about the race these days, the race company that you represent and the impacts that are created good and bad? How are you navigating that?
2: Well, one of the things we've done as part of our rebranding, uh, since I've been here, um, is we clarified and focused our mission statement. What is it? It's very simple. We create beautiful events that benefit the health and fitness of our community.
1: Okay.
2: Period. That's our mission statement. Nice and clean. It's very, so we want our events to be beautiful. And again, that can be defined in many different ways. Fortunately, we have a lot of scenic beauty. That's the most uh, easy explanation or definition of beauty is just the environment. but also a beautiful personal experience. and that's mm-hmm. the interaction of volunteers, um, whether you whether it's picking up your packet at the expo and that experience boarding a bus for an early morning ride to the start if that's necessary, etc. So things that just create a beautiful experience the way you're treated before, during and after the race. Uh, but also benefiting our community in that we use a lot of community groups. To put on these events, and um, as as a nonprofit ourselves, we provide grants back to these nonprofit groups. These are all nonprofit groups; they all have to give have a five hundred one c three number, and we provide a grant back to them. Mm-hmm. So, about three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year with our two flagship events, April and November, uh, back to the community. And this is a locals. These are locals. Wow. These are local community groups. And some of these groups, whether it's a service club, uh, a school, a scouting troop, et cetera, have been involved with our events for three decades. Wow. So it's a large part of their budget. Some of these organizations are only able to do some of the level of service programs they provide because of the assistance from the marathon. Um, So and that's a legacy that's going on for three decades.
1: Yeah, that's pay it forward on a whole other level.
2: It is paying it forward. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, we can talk about the direct economic impact, how many hotel room nights and rental cars and air flights and restaurant dollars and and the residual spending. And it's in the tens of millions of dollars. But it's also the fact that you might give uh, the senior class at a local high school who volunteered uh, you might give them a grant of fifteen hundred dollars. That helps pay for their trip to Washington D.C. Yeah, you know, or something like that. You
1: know what's amazing about those types of impacts that we have—social impacts—we call them—is that it doesn't just impact that student who got the scholarship for fifteen hundred dollars. It impacts everything that they do, their family, mm-hmm. and then everything that they do with that experience for the rest of their life. Like, it sounds like it's a small thing, but it's so huge, right? It extrapolates into that person having a different life experience they wouldn't otherwise.
2: I think so. And, you know, early on in the interview, uh, I mentioned that I still have my first running trophy. Yeah. uh, From 1970.
1: The Scouts Olympic.
2: The Boy Scout Olympics. Yeah. And, you know, somebody at that scout troop organized that event.
1: Thought it was important.
2: Thought it was important. Made the effort. And made an effort. And you Know is there a direct link to me being an endurance athlete? You know,
1: how could uh, there 50 be 50 years
2: later? Nearly 50 years later, there has to be some way, absolutely. It instilled into me, and you know, that hey, boy, you know, you can jump pretty good and you can run pretty good Very and tall. you can throw pretty good and, and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, are our, our, our other classmates who did the Olympics did they go on to run marathons? You know, probably not, but. But that instilled something into me so whoever that person was that scout leader that organization almost 50 years ago you know thank you because that was an event that obviously had an impact on me
1: exactly so
2: now with our events you know we have a a youth running program called just run you know it's a free web-based program that can be used anywhere in the world and uh, but we have thousands of, of kids, uh, over uh, 22,000 kids around the country that use this program, many of them in Monterey County. And we've been doing this program for 15 years. So some of the kids that may have been in Just Run 15 years ago were on the starting line of our marathon this year. That's cool. And maybe their families and their parents and their siblings and their friends, maybe they got inspired to run as and well. And now their children. And maybe they're, maybe their children you know, we'll be in just running. And so it's just helping the generation see the benefits of an active, healthy lifestyle. If, if, if we can do that, uh, we've succeeded.
1: I love it. If you could tomorrow just create any new race, I'm sure you have crazy ideas, race directors. We can't really stop ourselves from having wild ideas about races that we sort of dream of what would you create if it wasn't about making um other people happy or fulfilling the vision of the brand or even having to make it financially viable what race would you design uh
2: it would involve cats
1: oh, okay here we go <laughs>
2: no uh, yeah uh, run with your cat um well
1: like in a fanny pack, like on a backpack. Like <laughs> a little those carriers, a little carriers, little Yeah, baby the baby What about baby yeah. joggers? Baby for joggers cats. for
2: cats. Excellent. Uh, what it would might these be aid stations like that like. Yeah, there'd be like little treats. <laughs> little this would be salmon. awesome. There'd be like live you fish, You could get the Dairy birds.
1: Commission yeah. to be a sponsor of this.
2: Uh, you could have milk stops. For sure. Yeah, you could have little milk <laughs> aid stations. <laughs> you could just lap up the milk. Um, well... I think there have been some races like this, but I think, I think uh, it would be something that lowers the intimidation factor okay. and is a welcoming environment for people that feel intimidated and, and feel uh, whether it's um, uh, people who are larger who okay. don't maybe fit the model of what we think of as, as a runner, mm-hmm. and I can tell you a funny story about that in a minute, whether it's um, women who feel, feel uncomfortable, you know, running in public because of, you know, they get cat called and, and, you know, they sometimes can get a hostile environment. Mm. Um, and I think also uh, with younger girls to, to, you know, whether it's a mother daughter type of environment or something, and there are, there's girls on the run. I mean, there's, there's women's only women, only races. And I've, I've managed some of those through the years. Um, I think just providing, uh, a safe environment for those that that uh, you know want to try something and want to feel comfortable. And I think those are the races that I think are, are very popular. Um, I think a women's trail running series is mm-hmm. something that I think would have some some. Uh, I might be able demand. to help you with that. Yeah, so something that we're, we're thinking about something like that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want. To be limited by being a skinny old white guy. Mm-hmm. I uh, I can't deny that I'm a skinny old white guy, but um, that's not the future of running. Is skinny old white guys? Yeah. The future is inclusion. Absolutely. We're seeing that now. Whether it's the black girls run, uh, the black marathoner group, the women you know marathoner moms on the run, you know running mommies, all you know all these different groups. Mm-hmm. To me, that's. I think those are wonderful, and I—if I, I were to, you know, wave a magic wand, it'd be to create more experiences, whether it's actual competitive events or just training environments or or non-competitive participation, participatory events mm. that caters mm-hmm. to that audience. I love I was gonna, that. I, I was going to tell you a story about looking like a runner, and yeah. when people meet me, and I guess they'll see pictures of me on this podcast, and. Yes, I I fit the mold of a traditional runner.
1: I wouldn't use the old, but tall, white, thin. And thin. Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, I was doing an interview in New Orleans when when I was helping to promote the rock and roll of New Orleans. And I was doing course operations, so I wasn't the event director. The event director was with me. We were doing a a live interview in in a local TV studio, TV news station. And she was a 30-something larger woman. Mm -hmm. Very, very typical of a rock and roll audience, Mm -hmm. um, who again, are not trying to break three hours. They're trying to break the finish tape often in seven hours for their first ever marathon. And the commentator looked right over her, right to me and said, you look like a runner.
1: Wow. Yikes. And
2: yeah, this was live TV. So I had to correct her and said, actually today's races, most runners don't look like me. They look like her. You know, they're 30 to 40-something women who may not have, you know, an elite athlete uh, physique,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: but they're out there for their own reasons. And, and
1: know, they're driving the market.
2: And they're driving they're the, the, the market. They're the consumer. Every race we do at the Big Sur Marathon Foundation, and in the course of four different race weekends, we have 17 different races in various distances. Every one of those has more women than men. Mm-hmm. Every one of them. In some cases, it's 70% women. And we have to, re- uh, we have to respond to that. We, yeah. have to, we have to...
1: And we have to nurture it.
2: We do have to nurture right? it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have to encourage I'm not saying it. we
1: don't have to encourage males into the sport and transgender and everything that's happening right. in our world today, which is everybody should be running, as far as I'm concerned, or walking, right? We were born to use our bodies in that way. Yep. But we definitely need to be knowledgeable about who our audience is and respectful.
2: I think the other uh, event or scenario I would want to create, and we may be working towards this with our uh, foundation, is to tap into the Hispanic audience more, mm-hmm. yeah. particularly this area in California where we live. That's right. Where our, the county I'm in, Monterey County, uh, and many other counties are, are more Hispanic than they are Caucasian. Um, So whether it's making sure, you know, our website is bilingual or, but I think, again, we want to welcome that audience to an event. And I think that's going to be the potential as as California and and other states become more and more Hispanic and less and less Caucasian and and other ethnicities. The events need to reflect that.
1: When you have more time and you're not working so much uh, and you've got, let's say, some spare time, 10 hours a week. Let's say Doug has 10 hours a week of spare time that you could volunteer towards any cause or effort, whether it be one person individual and I'm mentoring this type of person or this, this group over here, or on a bigger scale, I'm volunteering my time. Where would you direct that energy?
2: Well, some of the things I have done, non-running related volunteer, is uh, I've read uh, For the Blind, a blind reading services wow. where you read newspapers that or magazines, great voice of yours. Uh, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and knowing how, uh, how important reading has been to me, journalism, writing, reading has been to me. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've volunteered in several ways in several different communities for that, whether whether it's a read, radio reading service, where it's a closed circuit, you, you know, private channel that's available only to, to, uh, visually impaired, um, Recordings. I've recorded books and magazines. I've been a, an adult literacy tu- literacy tutor. He says as he can, can't pronounce literacy.
1: <laughs> That's awesome.
2: <laughs> Helping uh, you know adults learn to read.
1: This is fantastic.
2: Uh, so and and uh, my work with public radio.
1: Yeah. Uh,
2: again, just promoting the local public radio station. Answering calls on pledge drives and things like that. You know, just routine. So
1: you continue to have an interest there or you've got something else that you kind of have your eye on? Or would you take those same skill set and put it somewhere else?
2: Well, uh, I, I'm not sure yet because okay. I, I don't have...
1: You don't uh, have this 10 hours a week I spoke I've,
2: about? I don't. But, uh, but those are things I have done in the past where I've okay. carved out some time because this isn't a very time-consuming job. Mm-hmm. When your vocation and your avocation are the same, you're never really off the clock. It's so true. Yeah. Uh, We wouldn't
1: even know how to turn it off if it were an option.
2: I'm not sure I know either. And I'm not sure I want to. Right. Because I, you know, love what I do and and do what I love. But sometimes you want to do something else too. Mm -hmm. Then talk running and read about running and run Mm -hmm. (laughs) and run running. Yeah. Um, So those are some other things I've done. Um, Of course, I'm, I'm an animal lover so perhaps you know if there's a cat sanctuary or cat mm-hmm. rescue or
1: that's where I thought you were going to go with cat that. training I thought we were going to yeah, yeah maybe I
2: you know
1: uh cat therapy
2: t- cat therapy yeah mm-hmm. uh, I think Bentley sometimes is a therapy cat around How old here is Bentley Bentley's about uh, I think he's about seven or eight years old I didn't get him from a kitten so uh, you
1: didn't but you got Bentley when you moved here
2: I did, yeah, yeah. Okay. I did. So I've had him for five years, and I think he was two or three years old. Bentley's a little Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, the power of animals to, to keep our lives in perspective, whether well, it's a dog. Well, it's cool. Or,
1: you have an animal environment in your office. I mean, there's a dog here now. There's a cat here now. Like, obviously, part of the space that you've created as a leader in the organization here in the offices is, is that pets are part of the everyday work environment. Why is that?
2: Well... Just about everybody who works here has a pet, and I i, I guess I started it off when I came and I got Bentley and thinking, well, I'm at work 10, 12 hours a day, mm-hmm. most days. He's at home just kind of doing nothing except sleeping and mm-hmm. kind of waiting till I get home. Well, why don't I bring him here so he can sleep here and wait till we go home? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, have
1: some social interaction throughout the day. Yes. Bentley's very social.
2: He is, so he'll mm-hmm. jump up. Anybody who knows a cat knows that when a cat wants to do something, they jump on your desk and walk across your keyboard and put their tail in your face and say, pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a good reminder that every now and then we, we need to get away from our computer and put our phone down and go outside and hunt for birds and lizards.
1: Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a huge grounding that comes with having a pet in your presence. Like there's just a, a reconnection, not only with nature, but like with yourself as a human in a very different way.
2: I think so too. They're, they're, they're innocent. You know, mm. they're, they're happy to see you. Uh, every day is... No,
1: judgmental,
2: Right. Every day is a new day for them to...
1: Unconditional love.
2: Explore. Uh, and I think for me personally, one of the things that I've been experiencing the last few years is as I've gotten a little bit slower in my running sometimes i judge my runs now not by how far i've gone or how fast i've gone i judge them by how many dogs i've met really cats i've met really so uh and people who run with me know know to expect this um that if there's a if there's a cat for sure i'm going to stop most dogs i'll stop for as well uh so it's not did i do eight miles it's do i i had a five dog run. That's awesome. So, so that's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps lower, it lets the dogs know that, Hey, runners are okay. Even when I'm cycling, sometimes I'll stop and say hi. Mm-hmm. So they know, okay, I don't need to chase these. They're friendly. Uh, so that's just another way that keeps me motivated to run. Sometimes it's I just about, that. I want to run today so I can go meet some new friends.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. I love that. So in closing, I would just like to say that it's been a pleasure. It is a pleasure to already know you, but now that I know a lot more about you and in terms of our audience getting to know you, I think there's just a you know, more to us as race directors. I know that like for me, it's a really rewarding part of this project is getting to know people in the industry in a very different way. And so what would you say out of all the things people don't know about you? Uh, what would be the quirkiest thing, the <laughs> oddest thing that you do about your day or in your weekly routine that that nobody knows, but it's kind of fun and quirky and a little bit telling?
2: Well, uh, I guess you know the cat thing is probably pretty quirky. That I think most a lot pre- of
1: us know about your.
2: Well, cat. So, now they do. Now
1: they do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think. I
2: think you know. Uh, but but if someone were to you know, I guess. Just read an article about yeah. you know the Big Sur Marathon, the racetrack. They probably would find it a little bit quirky that most days he's got a cat sprawled across his desk. Um, uh, boy, other quirky things.
1: Or fun, or well, just non-common. Let's say uncommon.
2: I think probably the the, the journalist background people yeah. would find that's uncommon. I mean, I was a sports editor of a paper. I was a, a, a magazine editor. I've I've done public relations work, communications work, uh, etc. Um, so so you know that's my my professional background is in communicating. Um, they probably would find that shocking if they read some of the materials that I put out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Where can we find some of these materials? Well,
2: <laughs> or would you rather not? No, uh, the uh, the Big Sur website, the Big Sur Race Program, the, the Big program. Sur Results yeah. Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, are I mean, I don't write everything, but mm-hmm. I, you know, generally proof it. Do you have a blog? I do not blog. No. Um,
1: would you consider starting one? I,
2: I I guess if there was an interest in that. I th- I think mm-hmm. what. I think most runners would find it interesting about the behind the scenes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How much time goes into? I agree. Ordering race shirts, yeah. I can't tell you how many hours <laughs> we spend on what percentage of sizes do you order, and mm-hmm. you know, are people who want a small going to move to a medium? I mean, it's just it's a it's a juggling act, um, but I, I think this series that you're doing behind the scenes.
1: Faces behind the races. Faces
2: behind the races is interesting because hopefully it'll be interesting to people because we're one of them.
1: Mm. We
2: participate in other races. We do. Uh, we love the thrill of pinning on a race number ourselves. We and, and every time I see somebody walking down the street or running in another race or out on a training run wearing one of our shirts, that's kind of exciting because mm-hmm. they said yes. So rewarding. They said, you sold me something I wanted to buy. Mm -hmm. I did your race. Hopefully, I had a good experience, a positive experience.
1: Well, they're still wearing the shirt, so we know they... (laughs) At
2: least the shirt fits them at least reasonably well. Right. Um, Or they bought a shirt at your race to promote that they did your race. So they're wearing it, you know...
1: With a sense of pride.
2: With a sense of pride. I did it. Uh, I came, I saw, I conquered. Kind I, of thing. They're
1: sharing in the pride that we have. You know, we're part yeah. of that.
2: Yeah, and and, and our again, team. The, and our team is very proud of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, these races wouldn't be possible without hundreds, if not thousands, of dedicated volunteers. Maybe each doing a little tiny slice of the event, but the event as a whole—it's like a helicopter, right? Forty thousand pieces flying in formation. Mm-hmm. Putting on a marathon is kind of like building a helicopter it shouldn't work but if everybody stays on the right pattern it does um, and that's what putting on these races are and it can be very rewarding
1: yeah cool well i look forward to sharing some adventures with you this year we'll have to see what that looks like might get you to push that edge just a little bit but uh i'm, I'm, I'm welcome
2: to be pushed i okay. may push back or i may just say <laughs> thank you samantha you we'll bring
1: bentley with take us take me
2: to the edge <laughs> We'll take Bentley <laughs> with us, and I'm always happy to at least look over the edge, if not jump over uh, with you or with others.
1: Awesome. Thanks, bud. Appreciate your time.
2: Thank you for coming
0: up to beautiful Carmel, California. Thank you for joining us on this adventure to Town, USA, where we meet with regular people living the endurance lifestyle to discover their why for doing what it is they do. Thanks to our partners at Race Roster for making this Faces Behind the Races mini-series possible. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe today so you get the latest episodes as they happen. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll catch you next time we go on this journey to Endurance Town, USA.
1: Bring it back.